Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Hi, my name is Andy McLenaghan. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Lucy Dacey, National Programme Manager for the Children's Society's Disrupting Exploitation Programme, and Becca Pierre, Professional Officer with Baswa England. We discuss the much publicised but often misunderstood issue of county lines, what it is, what it means for those involved, and what can be done to prevent the criminal exploitation, abuse and trafficking of children and young people by drugs gangs. Hi Lucy, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm looking out on my sunny garden and pretty happy. Good. Becca, are you feeling well? Oh, I'm so jealous. I'm in central London. I don't have a garden, so I'm looking out on a patio next to a street, but it could be worse as well. I don't want to make myself like pity party. So, <laughs> Lucy, where are you? I am in southeast London and maybe garden is a stretch. It's more of a yard. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm down in Lewisham. Okay, and I'm fine. If anybody, if anybody cares in the slightest, um, yeah, um, I had my COVID shot, my first COVID shot last week. Um, Northern Ireland is a wee bit ahead of the other UK regions, so they started giving them out to 35 to 39 year olds last week. Just in case you think I'm much, much older than that. Um, so listen, thanks guys. Thanks so much for joining uh, me for this episode of the podcast. Today we're, we're talking about county lines. And over the years, this is an issue that I'd, I'd read quite a bit about. But I'll confess that until recently, I had a fairly basic understanding of the complexity of the issues involved and the extent to which criminals prey on the vulnerability of, of young people to exploit them. Lucy, could you start us off by explaining what we mean when we use the term county lines? Yeah, of course. So it's a term that's kind of coined by the police originally, and it's to describe the movement of drugs, primarily by vulnerable children, but also vulnerable adults, kind of around the country and sometimes internationally to avoid detection. So the idea, I guess, previously was that um, I've heard it described that local drug dealers sold local drugs. And that changed with the county lines model. Groomers and exploiters would um, groom and coerce young people and they would then be trafficked around the country to sell drugs in an area that was different from where they lived. And that was to avoid detection, to, I guess, open up new markets. If you were an exploiter, it's part of a business model. Um, Urban gangs were then going into rural locations that had a less developed drug market. And it was about making money and avoiding detection. And that was how it started. And the term county lines was to refer to the idea that people were travelling across geographical boundaries, but also were using telephones to distribute and promote the drugs that they were selling. Okay, thanks for clarifying, because I wasn't entirely sure if it was to do with the phone line or the actual journey that was being made that referred to county lines. So it's, it's both. Is that correct? Yeah. It's both. Yeah, it was originally to do with travelling across the geographies. But yeah, the phone lines are part of that too. Um, And it's also to reflect, I think, the fact that people will travel on the public transport network. So it has lots of different layers of meaning now. Um, But yes, it was originally a term kind of coined by the police to reflect a new model of drug distribution and one that had a greater level of reliance, I think, on exploitation of young people, particularly within it. 
Thanks, Lucy. And Becca, is County Lions a recent practice or has it been occurring for some time? Actually been occurring for some time, but I think that the public awareness of it had not caught up before now. The police are only just starting to really understand the extent of it over the last 10 years. Um, When you look at the literature around County Lions, it only really starts to be written about from 2000 onwards. And why has it come to the public's attention over the last number of years? I think that the police are slowly starting to create specialist gang units and collect information and knowledge, whereas in the past there was a real absence of that. And um, gang leaders um, are extremely strategic and they have criminalised models which make it really, really difficult to trace and detect. So I think that's part of the reason is that it's been kind of flying under the radar for so long. One of the things that happened as well is people started to really listen to young people. So it was young people that were going missing for longer periods of time. There was there were these new trends and patterns that were coming up from frontline practice that I think made the police, social services and the voluntary sector kind of all sit up and say, something different is happening here. This model is changing. We haven't seen young people go missing in this way before. Um, and so... Obviously, it was that intelligence from the ground up that sort of led us to all of us across like society, but across the professional sector as well, to realise that the model was shifting. Um, yeah, and it takes a long time, I think, from that intelligence on the ground, from young people's experience to then feed up into changes in practice and policy and eventually law changing to reflect that new model of exploitation. I totally agree. So if we think about, you know, pre-baby P, um, multi-agency working was nowhere near as strong as it was post. And so as agencies started to work together, they started to join the dots and form that kind of picture, like Lucy was saying. In terms of the scope of the issues, the most up-to-date figures I can find are from 2019 and they're from the National Crime Agency. And they indicate that then in 2019, there were 1,000 county lines operating in the UK. Um, with the majority originating from London, the West Midlands and Merseyside. Then in 2018, the Children's Commissioner for England and Wales, she estimated that there were 50,000 children um, and young people involved in county lines. Though that's caveated because there's no systematic data collection on the issue. We've discussed that it's not a brand new issue, but Lucy and Becca, over recent years, have you seen the situation get better or have things gotten worse in terms of the numbers of young people involved? So we've definitely seen more young people come to the attention of services. So you're right, there's no one place where you can look at a data set and say, okay, that's the number of children that have been criminally exploited through county lines. That that data set unfortunately doesn't exist. There are some um, statistics that will point you in the direction of, if not a rising problem, certainly a rising um, acceptance of the issue and a rising awareness of professionals. So one of the things that happens when a young person's identified is that they will most likely get referred to the national referral mechanism. And there's been, which is the mechanism that supports young people and adults to get recognised formally as a victim of trafficking. And there's been a huge rise in referrals to that. And the rise is particularly amongst boys and particularly for criminal exploitation. So the kind of formal statistics all support that there is a rising problem. I think what it's really difficult to pin down is, is it a greater problem or are we just more aware of it and therefore the data's going up? I think it's most likely to be a combination of both. Um, But I think the thing about county lines and the thing that it's taught us 
is that the model won't stay static for very long. So I think that county lines will change in the future. And that will mean that the figures will probably take a couple of years to show that. Becca, you were in practice in London. In terms of your your first-hand experience, what, what's your opinion? So I can't speak on the national picture, but um, from someone who was on the front line, boots on the ground, I definitely saw an increase in what we'd call complex cases um, involving gang crime specifically. Um, and when I think about when I trained, um, which was five years prior to that, and not having any training whatsoever around gangs or even realising that it was a problem to suddenly being in practice and being inundated with this. I'd, I'd definitely say that the picture on the ground reflects that increase. So there's two issues there, the, the national referral mechanism and training. We're going to come back to those. So we'll park those in the meantime. If we could discuss a bit more about the actual model, I want to talk about, first of all, how criminals target and groom people to, in, to involve them in county lines. What do you see happening? I mean, what's a typical case? Well, at its, I always say at its most basic level, it's young people that are always, every young person, anyone who's ever grown up knows that there's the desire when you're a teenager to fit in, to have people around you that love you and care for you and support you. And what exploiters do is tap into that desire that everybody has. It's human nature. But what they can do very well is spot any sign of vulnerability, any sign that there's not a support network around that young person that can effectively safeguard and support them. Um, So it can be starting very kind of simply in terms of like being a friend with someone, um, kind of encouraging them to join a group of young people. I wouldn't necessarily even say that would always have the hallmarks of looking like a gang, whatever that looks like. Um, But it can start from there. And then it includes things like buying them things if they can't afford that if their family doesn't have the means to do that that can be a route in to that grooming process but also providing them with safety and security if that's not something that that young person has in their life or if there's potentially issues in the family home that they can provide something that that young person perceives that they don't have Um, and one thing that I've definitely noticed is that exploiters are really good at encouraging young people to withdraw from other types of support to turn down offers to make it difficult to engage with young people and that's something that makes it more challenging to safeguard young people as as they get more kind of entrenched in that in that exploitation which is why early intervention is is so important and I'm sure we'll come on to discuss that. Yes absolutely if we think about the factors that make young people more vulnerable to exploitation I'm thinking about young people that are in care for example or young people that that have been excluded from education are there certain issues that exploiters will actually focus in on? So the young people I worked with invariably were either excluded and put into um, PRUs, which are pupil referral units, um, where children typically go if they've been described as having quote unquote challenging behaviours or they were in care. Um, I even saw in practice that gang leaders would go as far as to push children into care um, and give them the right script on what to say so that social workers would place them into the system because they knew that without that level of supervision, they'd be more vulnerable. Um, Gang leaders were known to loiter outside of PRUs and also um, children's homes and foster homes, which really illustrates the extent of, you know, preying on the most vulnerable That's really shocking, that issue of, you know, giving people the lines, young people the lines to say to actually, you know, become involved in the care system. That's that's entirely new to me. In terms of lifestyle and sort of ostentatious factors, social media and music can play a real role there. 
Rebecca, that's something you've you've encountered as well. It is. So um, I've sat face to face with a police officer and a young person once. And the young person was saying, you know, I promise I'm not involved in in county lines. You've got the wrong person. And the police officer slowly turned around his laptop and pressed play on um, a very well-known YouTube channel where this young person was, in fact, um, you know, filmed dancing around a very expensive car with wads of money, you know, dripping with Rolexes and expensive jewellery. And that's exactly it. It's almost like uh, gang members flaunt this, you know, really expensive lifestyle and use that to advertise to young people, whether that's through Snapchat or TikTok. So I would say that, unfortunately, um, gang leaders are a lot more savvy than social workers when it comes to knowing how to meaningfully engage with young people and and make that lifestyle seem attractive. And is there a particular genre of music that's involved or can be involved? So I'm not an expert by any means, but drill music is one um, form of well-known kind of music genre that's used. In terms of social media as well, from our perspective, we've definitely seen young people be recruited. So people being kind of encouraged to add little symbols after their names if they're in the local area selling drugs or if they um, are able to like promote themselves on social media as a groomer and exploiter you like kind of that people know kind of the signs to look for as well so that's something that um, we've seen kind of we've also seen a really pernicious use of social media where groomers kind of can track where young people are based on like their location settings on their telephones so groomers can make sure that the young person is where they're meant to be at a particular time. So there's lots that social media and technology is kind of accountable for in terms of how it's used. Um, And there's lots of different ways, I think, as Rebecca said, that like professionals, we need to upskill ourselves as to how we can try and disrupt that use of technology because it is often well used by the groomers. And in terms of the ages of the young people involved, Children's Society produced a really fantastic report called Counting Lives, which was in July 2019. And I'll, I'll put that a link to that report in the show notes. But it was it was indicating that 14 to 17 year olds was the group that was most commonly involved. Yeah, that's definitely what's echoed in the programme that I manage. So most of the young people that we work with are that age. Um, they're mostly male as well. So there's definitely kind of gender dynamics at play. Um, I personally think there's an underreporting of girls that are involved in criminal exploitation. Um, we tend to see those going down the sexual exploitation referral routes into services when often it's actually a combination of both types of exploitation and some of the ex- criminal exploitation is missed. Um, But I would also say I think that's because young people unfortunately come to the attention of services too late. So we definitely get referrals primarily at that age. But there are, I believe, warnings and indicators at an earlier stage that are often not picked up to the extent that we would hope. So that transition from primary to secondary school has come up as a key point when young people can be more vulnerable and the early stages of grooming and exploitation can start. Um, But at the moment, yeah, the primary age demographic that we work with is that 14 to 17 year olds. Um, But I would like to see, as would the wider organisation, like more investment in those early indicators of exploitation that come at an earlier stage. Yeah, the youngest I worked with was 12 years old. And um, we knew in our local authority that gang leaders would loiter outside primary schools as well. So we did know that, um, unfortunately, children were vulnerable as, as young as being in year six as well. And what age would that be? So that's aged 11 upwards. That's horrendous. 
So we've discussed the vulnerability of young people in care and the fact that county lines gangs will actively target looked after children. And this can be made easier because of unsuitable accommodation or poor supervision. Becca, the, the independent review of children's social care is currently underway in England. So is, that, is that review going to be looking at the issue of criminal exploitation of young people? As far as we can see in the outline of what the review will entail, there aren't any explicit um, mentions of gangs or county lines as very generic statements such as we'll be looking at safeguarding inside and outside of the home. Um, For me personally, as someone with lived experience, I'm a care leaver and I lived in unregulated accommodation from 16 to 18. I know just how vulnerable children in that age gap in that age group can be how intimidating it can be to live in a setting like that where you're really not given you know loving consistent supervision and many people around me at that time in the in the place I was growing up were involved in criminal activity and I think a lot of those children find a real sense of belonging and there's almost an imitation of family, um, as dark as it sounds, in those criminal networks, which is often missing in, in the care system, unfortunately, that kind of sense that someone's looking out for you and someone's got your back as well. Um, but no, just to round off, there isn't any explicit mention of gangs or county lines as far as we can see. Thanks, Becca. The issue also of young people placed in children's homes out of area is also a, a real key issue. So um, the Children's Society, Lucy, you provide the secretariat to the all-party parliamentary group for runaway and missing children and adults. And they produced a report in September 2019, which is called No Place at Home, which again, I'll, I'll link in the show notes because it's really exceptional work. And that explored issues facing looked after children and young people who go missing from out of area placements. And I was shocked to see that 64% of children living in children's homes live out of area. Yeah, it's, it is really shocking, especially when you think about what being in care means, which is that, you know, you've been taken sometimes, obviously because you have to be for your own safety, out of a home setting. And so then taking away connections to your local area, taking away your peer network, your support network that you might feel in your local geography can make you more vulnerable. Um, and a lot of young people that actually go missing from out of area placements are going home. That's how they would describe it. They're going back to where they live or where they where they have lived before and it can make young people more much more vulnerable because you are taking away more of a support network that exists in their local area but I would stress that sometimes it's done for young people's safety particularly when it comes to criminal exploitation it can be that actually the local area is perceived to be quite a risky place for that young person and that young person's quite vulnerable there But we always say that a placement out of area should be done because it's the right decision for the young person, not because there's no capacity in the local area, there's no more suitable placements. And that's about greater structural investment into care placements more generally. So there's more of a choice about the social worker that has to make that difficult decision about where that young person should be placed. Um, Too often it's around capacity and money rather than the right choice for that young person at the right time. Um, And the only other additional thing is that we quite often know that information sharing when that placement happens is not as robust as it needs to be. So when a young person's placed out of area, the local police and the local authority where that young person is placed needs to know that that young person's in that area because they're vulnerable. And they're vulnerable just by the very nature of being in care, but also vulnerable, as you say, heightened vulnerability to criminal exploitation. 
And if the local authority and the police where that young person's placed don't know where they are, it's really difficult for them to safeguard them in the local geography. So there are quite a few missing pieces to the puzzle to ensure that placements are safe when they're out of area as much as they are even necessary. And I think, Lucy, it was from that No Place at Home report, I must have read this, that some county lines gangs were using kids that are placed out of area as an opportunity to essentially expand into new markets. Yeah, that was something that was fed through. Um, That's anecdotal. Um, I think that it is, by its very nature, it kind of has to be because the data isn't there um, to kind of um, add that greater weight to it. But we hear from practitioners and we hear from young people themselves that if they are part of a... um, kind of criminal exploitation groomed in their local area and they're then placed out of area, it is seen as an opportunity to expand into a new area where often there are other vulnerable young people as well placed in that placement. Um, Often they are in areas where there's higher levels of of deprivation and therefore higher levels of drug use. So criminal exploiters kind of see that as a good opportunity to cynically and um, kind of, yeah, cynically just expand their market really. So we've talked about the, the children and young people that, are, that might be more susceptible to being groomed into county lines, uh, gangs. What does involvement look like? You know, by, by its nature, uh, grooming a young person, there'll be a sort of a gradual process. But what would involvement look like from sort of the first stage, Lucy? Um, it's really different for different young people. And sometimes it can be a really long process of grooming and sometimes it can happen relatively quickly. Um, but it can often involve things like, um, will you carry something for me if I don't tell you what it is? Will you travel on this train if I buy you a ticket and go to meet this person and hand something over? Will you then potentially hold weapons, hold drugs, uh, to then being involved in kind of the distribution of drugs across a county line? So it can go kind of up to up to various different different levels um but what happens i guess along the way is that the risk and the threats of violence quite often increase so what can start as can you do me a favor becomes if you don't do this then i know where you live and i know who your family are and who your friends are and that's when we talk about young people moving to the trapped stage that's when they really do feel like they can't trust professionals they're trapped in this situation and getting out of that situation or exiting it becomes inherently risky as well. And that's when professionals have to work really closely with a multi-agency way to not only safeguard the young person, but to try and disrupt the perpetrator as well. And that's when it becomes really, as Rep was saying, complex safeguarding casework. And if young people face the risk of violence, they're also directed to, to do violence to others. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. We hear like heartbreaking stories around what initiation might look like, um, what violence they're asked to perpetrate um, to other young people. Um, They're also required in some cases to kind of establish new drug lines into new areas. And that comes with risk because in every area, there normally will be someone who's already selling drugs in that area. And then violence against the young person is a real risk because they're obviously encroaching onto somebody's territory um, and this is fundamentally when you boil it down it's all about money and it's all about profit for the for the exploiters and so anyone that's threatening a business model is inherently at risk of violence and um, what's really sinister about this is that the people that make the profit are nowhere to be seen they're not at risk of that violence they're sending young people um, into that situation and they're the ones that are really at risk of being arrested and also at risk of violence being done to them. And I mean, it's an incredibly lucrative criminal activity. The, the, the most accurate figures I could get, government figures, suggested that the overall profits from all county lines operations exceed £800 million a year. 
you know, that, that's, that's huge. So the young people that are being exploded, they're central to that enterprise. In terms of how they're coerced once they're involved, what does that coercion look like and what are the barriers they face to leaving? Lots of children are introduced to gangs when gang members will befriend young children, particularly those who are really vulnerable or maybe they've been excluded or they're in the care system. And that can take many forms, whether it is something as simple as offering um, free food, um, which doesn't sound like much perhaps to an adult who's got um, a guaranteed income, but for children who are living in the poverty line, um, food is so important. And I think in cultures all around the world food represents bonding um, so many children are fed they're clothed or they're offered um, you know free gadgets or any number of nice things whether it's new trainers or you know fashion that kind of symbolizes that they're part of the gang um, so it can really start in that way that's startling you know it, it, the, the issue around food and providing food it just shows you how vulnerable these young people are and how just just how criminal and how evil it is that they're being preyed upon you know absolutely and, and it goes beyond food to shelter as well we know that some young people if they're offered you know 500 to 800 pounds a week to to do the job on the ground that if you know they're from a family where the parents are struggling to pay rent or struggling to buy school shoes or any of the basics it's almost a no-brainer that you know these pull factors would entice them in as well we talk about how it's a exploitation of the family in that the family is in poverty like they're living in structural poverty and sometimes the young people have that perception that they can provide um, if they're offered money of that of that level when you're facing those challenges around being able to not even afford some of the basics. Um, sometimes I think we get into the nature of talking about um, young people getting really expensive things and sometimes it is that but sometimes it's really basic um, provisions that you would expect any family to have an entitlement and a right to within certainly within this country to have. If we come back to the issue of, of um, risk of harm, you know, in what contexts are the young people at greatest risk of harm? You know, are they at risk from members of rival gangs, um, customers they're selling drugs to, or the criminals coercing them? And just, just in relation to that, Lucy, maybe you could explain, because this is something I don't understand. When a young person is sent out to deliver drugs, who are they meeting at their destination? Are they selling drugs to users? Are they passing a package to another dealer? You'd think if they were selling drugs to users, they are, you know, a lot of risk there. You've already said that they're at risk from rival dealers that may have already been in the area. So that was a long question. But in terms of in what context do you think that young people are at the greatest risk of harm? It can be different depending on the kind of role that the young person is forced to have within the within the network. So if young people are going missing for a long periods of time, what they're often done is sent with a phone into a new area and then um, a message is sent out to, to local drug users that there's drugs available and then they're almost given individual commissions. So that young person will be told to go and deliver a certain drug to someone down the street and they will go and meet them and deliver that and come back. Um, young people are often sent with a certain quantity of drugs and told not to come back until you've sold that amount. So it can really differ or they can be told to go to um, what's called a trap house and drop off the drugs and then come straight back. And sometimes that's to avoid detection. So it can really vary depending on almost the, the kind of role that that young person has been, been kind of forced to, to execute for that, for that gang um, and for that organised criminal group. But the violence, I guess, is is there at every different level. The violence is from the organised gang that's groomed that young person for fear that young person might tell 
authorities who they are, might give them information, the threats to their family to keep them there, keep them trapped in that situation, threats from drug users themselves, who obviously are in some cases kind of not not getting the right support from drug rehabilitation services or are desperate, and also from rival gangs. So I think it's difficult to pinpoint where the most violence comes from because violence is just inherent in the in the model itself. It's at every different level. So I'd just add, I think from my perspective, the gangs themselves pose an enormous amount of risk. We know that it's really traumatic anyway for a child to be on the ground and to be exposed to, um, you know, potentially violent drug users and violent gang leaders. Um, we've heard stories where children have tried to leave gangs um, and they've received texts from gang members saying, um, if you do this, you know, we're going to set your house on fire. Um, that includes your family, your seven siblings. Um, we also know that the initiation processes can be so very damaging. Um, we've heard stories where children, um, to even be accepted into the gang, um, they are filmed in the street in almost a street fight and the winner is then accepted into the gang and the loser is humiliated on social media. Um, obviously, both parties there are at risk of a great deal of harm. But even if you think about the one who's lost, um, quote unquote, that can be enormously humiliating. And, you know, if you think about that fight being immortalised forever online, that's really painful for lots of children. We've also heard stories where gang leaders will stage almost the child being beaten up or stolen from. So um, I was involved in a case where a child had about £7,000 worth of drugs robbed from them and they ended up in hospital. Um, and it actually emerged that the person who had beaten them up and, and staged um, the theft was the gang themselves. And they did that so that that child would then be indebted to them. Um, so... I think risk can come from everywhere, but the gang itself is enormously dangerous. And did that revelation come from the child? Did they know that the gang had staged that attack? I think that's a difficult thing. The child didn't know, and it really took a lot of convincing from a very experienced police officer who was a specialist in gang crime to sit the child down and say, this gang is not for you, they're not in your best interest. And here's what actually happened. So that's a difficult thing when children are so vulnerable, they don't want to believe that they're being exploited a lot of the time. Just, I just wanted to add on um, like the violence that's experienced, just because we haven't touched on it and coming back to the gender point, the, the sexual violence that's sometimes involved in the county line model is also um, obviously really kind of harrowing and traumatic for the young people that are involved. So um, we talk about kind of young people being forced to carry drugs inside them. And at the Children's Society, we always talk about that as sexual exploitation because that's, that's what it is. Young people are being forced to carry drugs inside their bodies to avoid detection. And that's kind of a way in which they're humiliated. We've heard of that being filmed, as Rebecca said, and that's part of like collateral almost that's held against that young person to stop them trying to exit or get support in any way. So I think that level of sexual violence um, is quite often missed within a county lines model, but is something that's very prevalent. Is that violence directed against boys as well as girls? Absolutely. That's boys as well as girls. And um, I think we miss sometimes the sexual violence that's perpetrated against boys because we focus on the primary form of exploitation that we can see, which is criminal exploitation. But actually the humiliation and trauma and 
fear that's associated with that sexual exploitation can often be very, very pronounced, particularly for young men who don't always feel able to disclose or come forward and talk about that type of exploitation. In terms of the staged violence as well, I it must have been in one of the Children's Society's reports, uh, Lucy, that I'd read, indicating that gang leaders will direct gang members to attack another individual in a local area to divert the attention of police so that they can move a product. Move, I won't call it a product, call it drugs. Call it what it is, you know. Um, and uh, that's so cynical and it's hor- horrific and it shows zero concern for the young people, obviously, that are being attacked and zero concern for the young people that have been directed to conduct that attack. Absolutely. That was something that we heard from a professional network um, and were aware of. Yeah, young people were told to go and essentially cause a diversion, get as many um, people involved in a, in a fight as possible so that police were diverted in that local area and drugs could be sent out. Um, and that's the thing, I think, they're used as pawns in a in a much bigger game from the perspective of the exploiter and as, as Rebecca was saying it's the biggest work and the biggest journey that we support young people to go on is like trying to unpick this idea that someone that they perceive that they trust and that cares about them actually doesn't care about them at all and is using them for their own benefit and exploiting them but imagine the journey that someone has to go on to kind of come to that realization it takes dedicated long-term casework from everyone from the voluntary sector, from the social workers, from the police, from anyone that young person will really trust. And that's why it's, it can be such a long-term piece of work that you have to do. You have to work with those young people and their families. We've seen also a big surge in knife crime over the last number of years. And there was a House of Commons research briefing that I read. It was from October 2020, so pretty recent. And it indicated that knife crime in England and Wales was at its highest level, uh, highest recorded level in a decade. And urban forces were were highlighting big problems uh, more more so than, than rural forces. Is that tied up with county lines? We know that knife crime is tied in very much with gang violence. Um, I had very sad cases where my colleagues were supporting children who were stabbed in broad daylight and they were stabbed as part of what we call territory or turf wars or postcode wars as well. So I think the two are really inseparable. And many children I worked with said that whilst they understood logically that Um, the eye for an eye concept and why it wasn't good to carry a knife. They were so fearful for their lives. Um, They were so fearful that the gangs themselves would attack them that they felt they had no choice but to carry knives. Lucy, Becca, we've talked an awful lot about the violence. We've talked about the exploitation and the coercion of young people and the risks that they face. If we look now at the, the response from statutory services, is there an adequate recognition in your experience, is there an adequate recognition among statutory services that the young people involved in County Lines are victims um, rather than offenders? It's, it, I find it really difficult to generalise in the round. Like in some cases, young people are recognised as victims. Um, there are a few factors at play in terms of, I think, how young people are perceived. So one is age. I think the older a young person gets, the more likely it is that they're going to be labelled a perpetrator. So as you say, we've touched on it earlier, the average age that we work with is 14 to 17 year olds. And I would say as you get closer to that end of that bracket, as you get closer to 17, transitioning into adulthood, the willingness of of agencies to recognise that you're still a child up until that age does, does fall away. And you have to have much more, I think, robust conversations with professionals around how that young person is exploited, is a victim, um, can get even more complicated when that young person is grooming other young children. 
Um, but I think there is that recognition does fall away sometimes as young people get older. There's also a race element at play, I think definitely in some of the areas where we work, around how young people are perceived and the perception that um, a young person from a certain demographic, from a certain postcode in particular, is less likely to be recognised as a victim. But I think in the round that professionals are, the awareness of county lines exploitation has significantly improved over the last five or six years that I've been working in this field. And there is a greater recognition that young people don't fall into two categories. They're not the perfect victim and they're not the perfect perpetrator. And you have to work with young people where they're at. And you really have to support young people as recognitions that they're victims of criminal exploitation and therefore might present with lots of challenging needs. But that's part of their exploitation and that's where we need to work with them at. So we know that adultification is a huge problem and for any listeners who aren't quite sure what that means, it's um, a form of racial prejudice where black and minoritised children are perceived as a lot older by authority figures and that means they're punished a lot more harshly as well. So not only are children um, much more likely to be kicked out of school, we know that black Caribbean children were five times more likely to be kicked out of school um, last year but also they're much more likely to be stopped by the police as well. So children really need to be viewed um, for, you know, in relation to what would be expected of any other child at that stage of development. And I think social workers really need to challenge adultification as and when they see it. Thank you, Becca. In terms of the recognition of young people involved in County Lions as being exploited, uh, as being trafficked and as being victims, Um, Would it be helped if there was a statutory definition of child criminal exploitation, Lucy? Absolutely. I think there still is differences of what criminal exploitation means across a range of different agencies. So for a lot of people, criminal exploitation will only mean county lines exploitation. So it will only mean travelling with class A drugs from an urban environment to a rural environment. And if a young person doesn't tick all those boxes, they're perceived to be a perpetrator as opposed to a victim. We're very clear that a definition needs to recognise what's at the heart of criminal exploitation, which is an unequal power balance, grooming and coercion to commit a crime for someone else's benefit. So we've seen a rise in in our casework around young people being forced to steal cars, shoplifting, organised fights, and all of that, if it was encompassed in a statutory definition, would have more authority when you're talking to other professionals in the network to get that recognition. So it would certainly help with that. And it would also help with prosecutions of the right offences. We see perpetrators being charged with drug offences as opposed to being charged with what is child criminal exploitation and so we hope that it would help prosecute perpetrators for the pernicious offences they're committing against children as opposed to just drug supply. Thanks Lucy. Becca you had mentioned the need for social workers to better understand these issues including the issue of adultification. Um, what, What training do social workers currently receive in relation to safeguarding children and young people that are at risk of being exploded by um, county lines gangs? I think honestly it's quite patchy. Um, There isn't a consistent curriculum so someone training in Hull for example would receive an entirely different um, curriculum and approach to someone training in Cornwall so I think what really needs to happen is for contextual safeguarding concerns and that includes gangs and county lines to be 
um, non-negotiable in all education, but also in follow-up training. So we know that there's excellent social workers on the ground who might have um, graduated long before these concepts even came into social work consciousness. So um, it's really important that local authorities are also offering these top-up training sessions for those kind of social workers. You said about how syllabuses can, can vary based on geography. In terms of social workers that are currently in practice and qualified, is a regionally targeted approach to training needed? So, I mean, are social workers in urban areas where county lines originate? Are they the only ones that are encountering the safeguarding issues? Or are social workers in, in the county lines destinations also encountering the issues? You know, so what I'm getting at, does there need to be a regional approach or should every social worker that's working in a children and family sort of facing role be aware of these issues? I think it definitely needs to be a regional approach and it needs to be tailored. So I know living and working in London, the issues here are completely different from where I've lived. I've uh, spent most of my life living in coastal towns um, and the issues there are very different. I think that the need is driven by substance misuse or by regional inequality and poverty Um, and so that lens really needs to be taken on board and there's no one-size-fits-all approach. I think it also needs to evolve rapidly so over lockdown for example um, we've seen that services have been slashed, um, the charitable sector has been really hit so whereas 12 months ago local authorities might have been able to commission Uh, specialist gang charities Um, now those charities might not even exist so it really needs to be reviewed regularly has lockdown had an impact in terms of the push and pull factors that lead to young people becoming involved in county lines i would say definitely so whereas children before were at risk anyway even if they were had a very on-off relationship with um, school at least they did have that safety net Whereas I know that at one point in the pandemic, children were off for up to six months. And so with no one to keep an eye on them and no safety net, they were much more vulnerable. I think poverty also plays a huge role. So if gangs were offering uh, large sums of money to children who were really struggling, um, that, of course, would be another pull factor. Um, There's issues of health as well. So we know that um, if parents were shielding or at home or foster carers were shielding, they couldn't provide that kind of um, all-seeing, all-knowing support to children as well. So there's lots of factors. There's a real concern that that we have in the sector that... um we're going to get quite a few referrals now coming through where the exploitation is more entrenched because some of those eyes and ears that normally would be present in kind of regular times, so like youth workers, social workers, schools, some of that provision has had to be more remote, more scaled back. Um, so those eyes and ears that normally would spot some of those early indicators of exploitation haven't been there as much. We're obviously worried across the sector that there will be an influx of young people where the exploitation has become more entrenched during lockdown and they will therefore require more intensive support from professionals in order to support them. In relation to lockdown, in relation to restrictions on travel, has that not had an impact in terms of inhibiting young people that are involved being sent out or are they still being sent out um, at risk? You know, because they obviously face the risk of, of contracting COVID as well if they're out travelling. 
We've seen um, anecdotally through the casework over the last kind of 12 months to 18 months, young people aren't traveling in ways that are as visible anymore. So we used to have a lot of young people being picked up by British Transport Police on the transport network. But obviously, um, to a certain extent, you can hide on a busy train, whereas it's very difficult to hide when no one else is on the train. So um, those young people we've heard are going into private taxis, um, cars are being kind of commissioned to take young people. So they're kind of traveling, but a bit more under the radar to avoid detection because, you know, you are much more visible during COVID um, traveling across the transport network. To add to that, 12 months ago, I was still in a child protection team and our managers said to us, hold on to your ID badges. It's really important because there's been some stories of local gang leaders snatching these badges so that children could disguise themselves as lockdown and key workers, which just really shows that gang members are always three steps ahead of us, I think. Yes, I mean, that was in national media about kids being sent out in, in scrubs to look like key workers. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Something that was mentioned near the start of the conversation and I said we would come back to is the national referral mechanism. So as I understand, that's that's designed to identify child victims of trafficking and modern slavery and to treat them as victims um, rather than as criminals. You have some concerns, though, about how that mechanism is working, Lucy. Yeah, absolutely. I think on paper, the national referral mechanism is a great Um, support network for young people because it does formally identify them in the system as a victim of trafficking and crucially for some of the young people that we support it provides them with a defense in law so that if they commit a crime which they often do as a result of their exploitation a good solicitor will stand up and defend that young person by saying that they're a victim of modern slavery and trafficking and the reason why they've committed this crime which is often possession with intent to supply is the is the offence that most of the young people that we support are charged with, that they've been forced to commit that. It's not of their own free will. And so that's really vital in ensuring that the system sees them, the judicial system sees them as a victim. But we know that it doesn't often act as a gateway to further support. So if you're an international victim of trafficking, so your, your parents aren't in the UK, you'd get an advocate as a result of that process. But if you're domestically trafficked and you're, you've got parental support within the UK, even if you're in need of that extra support, you don't receive it. So there is a big gap, I think, in provision of what the national referral mechanism should deliver. And we would ask that every young person that's recognised as a victim gets access to that advocate because they're trained professionals and they can provide really dedicated specialist support to young people who already have been recognised as a victim of trafficking. So they've already gone through a huge amount of trauma and exploitation to get to that point. And Becca, you've seen shortcomings with the national referral mechanism at the coalface as well. Absolutely. So I know that... When it comes to um, a child being involved in a gang, it really has to be a time-sensitive kind of response, you know. But we know that the whole referral mechanism took up to six months in some cases, and that's just not good enough because if a child's involved with a gang in one week, that can cause untold harm and they can be exposed to violence and trauma that can influence them for the rest of their lives. So this is a mechanism that really needs... um, solid investment. Um, what I would also say is there's there's just issues in terms of engaging families, um, specifically families who maybe don't have English as a first language, when we've tried to get interpreters on board. Um, sometimes these concepts don't even exist in other languages, so it really needs to be revisited as an approach and um, it needs to be much more culturally competent, I think, than it is at the moment. 
Lucy, Becca, thank you so much for taking part. We're going to wrap up soon, but I've got one last question for each of you. Lucy, I'm creating a new position in government called Home Secretary slash Secretary for Justice. What would you change in your first six months in that role to improve the situation for young people? Gosh, that's a lot of power and authority. Let me take a moment to ponder. I would ensure that there is a definition of criminal exploitation so that we could really prosecute perpetrators for the crime that they're committing and that it adequately reflects the grooming and exploitation and trauma that they've put the young people through. And Becca, you have been elevated to the position of Secretary of State for Education slash Chief Social Worker. What would you change? I think I'd start with prevention. It's not good enough to find that a child has already been involved in a gang. That That isn't the point at which intervention should start. So I would make sure that teachers um, were trained and aware to spot the signs and also social workers but I'd also go back to the very basics um, make sure that sure start and, and similar kind of initiatives are around make sure that poverty is addressed make sure that children and families have access to um, a benefit system that doesn't leave them so vulnerable um, to gang crime in the first place yes and amen Lucy, Becca, <laughs> thank you so much for taking part. Thank you very Thanks, much for having me, Andy. Andy.